thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight we're going to continue our Bible study on the book of Genesis. So far we have spent uh, quite a bit of time, about uh, six lectures, talking about science. Tonight we're going to start the actual study of the book of Genesis. And I think as an introduction it would be a good thing for us to remind ourselves of what St. John Chrysostom had said. Chrysostom is actually a Greek word that means mouth of gold because he spoke so eloquently. And he said the following, Let us accept what is said in Scripture with much gratitude, not overstepping the proper limit, nor busying ourselves with matters beyond us. This is the besetting weaknesses of enemies of the truth, wishing as they do to assign every matter to their own reasoning and lacking the realization that it is beyond the capacity of human nature to plumb God's creation. What he's saying is that at the end of the day, we cannot hope to fully and completely understand all that is in Scripture because the Word of God is the face of Jesus Christ and because of this, it is impossible for us to fully understand it. So there are limits to our understanding. That's something that is really worthwhile keeping in mind. The book of God will always be a mystery. Having said that, before we study, we begin our study, we need to understand how we actually go about studying scripture. And the Catholic Church gives us some guidelines. And those are called the four senses of scripture. The four senses of scripture. And the four senses of scripture are going to be our guide throughout the book of Genesis. So what are the four senses of Scripture? The first sense is called the literal sense. Now, the literal sense is not the word-for-word meaning. You understand? The literal sense is not the word-for-word meaning. It is actually the meaning that the human author of Scripture intended when he wrote his text in the context in which he lived. You understand that? So, we need to recover that. We need to really understand what he was trying to say in that context so that we can make sense of it in our own context. This is the foundation of scriptural interpretation. 
Without that, we, may, we, we can get scripture to say anything we want. So, for instance, there is, an, an, there is a translation of the New Testament where the translator decided that, you know what, we should really try to make that fit the American context and the American culture. So instead of talking about Israel and Bethlehem and Jerusalem, he decided to relocate all that in Kansas. So he uses Kansas names, Kansas villages and cities, instead of cities in Palestine. And of course, when he does that, a lot of the meaning is lost. So we have to be very careful in properly understanding the meaning as intended by the human author writing in a specific context. You understand that? Then there are three spiritual meanings that are also important for us. The first one we call the analogical meaning. And that is the meaning according to Christ. It is the meaning of Scripture where we find Jesus Christ. The perfect example for us in the book of Revelation, the book of Genesis, I mean, is, of course, Adam. Right? When the human author wrote about Adam, he meant that first man who was created by God. That is the literal sense. Right? The sense according to Christ is that Adam was the first man. Jesus Christ is the first new man. So Adam becomes, according to St. Paul, the old man or the man of the flesh. And Jesus Christ is the man of the spirit. So St. Paul, reading the story of Adam in Genesis sees through that, and I'll show you why when we get there, sees through that Jesus Christ. Another example is in the book of Exodus, when the human author speaks of the um, Egyptians pursuing the Israelites as they, as they run, you know, they're, they're fleeing away from them. There's this pillar a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of um, fire. Uh, fire by night that appears and guides them. So the literal sense is about a literal cloud thing and a literal fire, something that is visibly that is physically visible. The sense according to Christ is that this is a manifestation of Jesus Christ the true shepherd guiding his people. Do you understand? So, this first spiritual sense builds on the literal sense. Okay? So that's the analogical meaning. And then we have what we call the anagogical meaning. And this is the meaning according to the church and the end times. This is the meaning where we find in Scripture an indication about what will happen to the church and about what will happen in the end times. Okay? So, for instance, as an example of that, you can say that when 
Israel was able to cross through the Red Sea and reach the other side, the anagogical meaning is that the church is going to be able to cross through the world, reaching heaven. Do you see that? Do you understand? Yes. So that is how we find new meaning in the text. Another example, because it also applies to Our Lady, is that the Red Sea parted to let the Israelite cross. But the Red Sea closed back and all the Egyptians died. And that is also an example where St. Ephraim sees the Red Sea as indicating the, by an, the anagogical meaning Mary, Our Lady. Because in Mary, we are all born to eternal life. And in Mary, sin dies. It is also, another anagogical sense, is that the Red Sea is a representation of the church with the sacrament of baptism. That's why we immerse children in water. They are they get into the water and they get out on the other side, a new creation. However, sin, which is represented by the Egyptians in this case, dies, doesn't cross over. Do you understand? And in the last sense, which is also important for us, so we saw the literal, the, the, the literal, the, anagog the analogical and anagogical, and the last sense is called the moral sense. Moral sense. And that's the sense that applies to us today, personally. What is Scripture, what is God telling me through Scripture today? So, when we get into the habit of reading Scripture every day, we encounter God. We get to know God, and we get to know God's will for us. And only when we encounter God in this way can we really come to know His will. When we have problems at school, when we, ha when we have challenges, if we were to take the time to read Scripture and pray and tell God about our problems, God responds. God comes to our aid. God helps us. That's how we become serious Christians. We take His Word seriously. We meet Him in the, world, in the Word every day. And we learn to come to know Him through His Word and through the personal relationship that we have with Him in prayer. The moral sense, therefore, is what is God telling me today? So, for instance, we can read the same passage about Adam. We're going to do that. We see how Adam behaves. And then we ask ourselves, how would I behave if I were in that situation? Would I have remained faithful to God? Or would I have also betrayed Him? So St. Philip Neri, who was a saint with a great sense of humor, had a prayer which is worth memorizing. His prayer was, Lord, remember Philip today, lest he betrays you again. Lord, remember Philip today, lest he betrays you again. He was very realistic in his prayer because he knew he, like Adam, has a tendency of betraying God, but that God is full of mercy and He forgives if we go to Him 
sincerely and we ask for His help so we can be made perfect as God is perfect. Alright? Now, in the 16th century and around that time, this was taught to all Catholics, at least in the West, and it was called the Catholic Quadriga. Quadriga. So for those of you who are doing a little bit of Latin, you might know what Quadriga means. And if you don't, it actually mean, means wheel. The Catholic wheel. Why? Because the way they would teach it is that they would put the word temple in the middle. Temple. And they would start with the literal sins and create this wheel. How's that, how does this work? When in Scripture, during Jesus' time in the New Testament, read about the temple. Jesus went to the temple. Remember when he was a young boy? He stayed behind in the temple. What does the temple mean? What is implied by the word temple? Anyone can help me? It is the actual building, the temple. Yes? When Jesus stayed behind in the temple, he stayed behind in the temple, the real temple. Yes? So the literal meaning of the word temple was what? The temple that was built by Herod the Great. That's what was implied. Jesus also said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Remember that saying? Okay, here's what's really interesting. The Pharisees understood what when he said that? What did they think Jesus was talking about? The building. But St. John tells us that he was talking about his body. His body. So, Jesus himself applies the analogical meaning in the temple, and sees the temple as what? A representation of Him. Not just God, Him. That's important because the temple is physical. It's a physical structure. Jesus isn't just a spirit. Jesus has a physical body. But Jesus has a spirit. He has a divine spirit. So what's the implication about the temple? That in a temple, there ought to be what? A divine spirit, the Holy Spirit. And under Solomon, when the temple was built by Solomon, and he finished building the temple, and he consecrated it, what happened? Fire came from heaven and lit the holy flame that remained perpetually lit, from which you would light every fire for sacrifice. And what dwelt in the Holy of Holies? The Shekinah. The Shekinah. That means the presence, the presence, the Holy Presence, the dwelling of God, the Holy Spirit was present in the Holy of Holies. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit that animates the temple. Alright? And that has a very important implication because during Jesus' time, that temple in the Holy of Holies, there was nothing. So it was effectively what? Dead. The temple was dead. What do we have in our churches today? The Holy Presence. 
right? The holy presence, the Shekinah in the tabernacle. That is why our churches are alive. Because there is the Spirit of God dwelling in them. The church and the tabernacle, therefore, is a representation of whom? Jesus Christ. Okay? Then the moral sense. What did St. Paul tell us about ourselves? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember when I told you that in the temple in Jerusalem, under Solomon, the Shekinah, the Spirit of God, dwelt? That's why St. Paul says that. The literal sense, the meaning of the temple, allows him to say that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, why say, why use the word temple? Why didn't he say you are the dwelling of the Holy Spirit? You are where the Holy Spirit lives. You are where the Holy Spirit is present. Why use the word temple? Because physically, the physical reality of the temple had a spirit in it. The Holy Spirit, the Shekinah. You understand that? So the literal sense is the foundation for all these senses. We get this wrong, we get everything else wrong. And the last one is anagogical meaning. What is the temple today? The Catholic Church. Church. The church is the temple. So if the church is a temple, what are we? We are the people of God. We are Israel. Do you understand? So you remember that a lot of people now are trying to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem? You see how they're completely off? They're thinking the temple was destroyed, we need to rebuild it. But we answer back and say, no, Jesus did exactly what he said. He destroyed the temple in 70 AD. But the temple was destroyed. Three days later, he rebuilt it by rising from the dead. And then he made it manifest across the world through the Catholic Church. So the temple lives on. It was never destroyed in history. And they're still trying to rebuild that old temple. Why? Because they missed this. Do you understand how this is important? Mm-hmm. Now, watch what happens. What happened to the, to the, to the Jewish temple? It, it got destroyed. It didn't collapse. It was destroyed. What happened to the body of Jesus Christ? On the cross, right? What happens to us? We're going to die. What happens to the church at the end of time? The physical church. It gets destroyed, right? What happened to the body of Jesus Christ? Three days later. What's going to happen to us if we are faithful to Him? What happens to the church? It becomes the glorious church. Do you see how meaning on the literal sense then guides us in applying it to all those senses? Yes? That is the principle of interpretation we're going to follow because that is the Catholic way of interpreting Scripture. And now you begin to understand, or maybe not understand, but get an intuition why we say that Our Lady is present in the entire Scripture. Because everywhere we go, we find text which at the literal sense applies directly to her. When we look at it from the anagogical meaning. Do you understand that? Mm-hmm. So, you need to keep in mind that as we read the text, and as we try to explain it, we're going to be focusing on the literal sense, because that's what we've lost. You need to realize what you have lost. Because the previous generations were not faithful. 
you need to realize what is going to be your duty to rebuild. And that is tradition. The reason why the literal sense is so hard for us to understand is precisely because we don't have that meaning passed from generation to generation. We lost all of this. We became worldly. We know more about baseball and soccer and football and all those passing trends. We know more about gadgets and we know more about things that really don't matter to our eternal life than those things that really matter. And we allow the world to do that to us because we are not vigilant. You are going to feel that even more strongly than we because you're going to be one generation removed from this tradition. It is going to be up to you to rebuild that. You must understand this as being a great and very important sacred duty that God is going to give you in rebuilding a Catholic culture. The reason why culture is important isn't because it's really cute and because it's modest. Those are important, but it's because it's precisely, it incorporates in itself all those meanings so that the scripture is much easier for us to understand than it is today. The devil knows what he's doing. He pulls us away from our roots, so our roots become meaningless. And when this happens, Scripture becomes very hard for us to understand, and we're lost. Do you understand that? Yes. Now, when we read Scripture, therefore, it is not enough for us to say, okay, um... You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so St. Paul means that... Uh, it's, it's a cute little expression that means that uh, the Holy Spirit is in us. Yeah. No. When he says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, he's bringing to bear what? First, the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was this place in the back of the temple separated from the rest by a curtain that was 30 feet high and 70 feet wide. Alright? Not a small curtain. It took 20 men to lift this thing up. Behind that curtain was an altar. There used to be under Solomon the Ark of the Covenant that contained the rod of Moses, the manna, and the rod of Aaron that budded the Tablet of the Commandments, the manna. And on it, there was a mercy seat covered by the cherubim. And on that mercy seat, the Holy Spirit dwelt. And that was a place that the high priest would enter only once a year. And they used to attach a rope to his leg. Because in case God would smite him in there, they could pull his body back. And God did actually kill two priests in the temple. Because they use an unnatural, unnatural fire. He smut them. We Catholics have no idea of the sacredness of the church. We enter the church and we think we're entering a hall. We sit down for Mass, we think it's a performance. As soon as Mass is done, we get up and start talking. We don't realize that we are in the presence of the Holy of Holy. God Almighty is right there. And we just start talking as if we are in a hall. Why? We lost that culture. There was a bishop, Chaldean bishop, 
who came to the to the to San Diego and he was being brought to the church by taxi. It just so happened to be that the that the the driver, the cab driver, was Muslim, and so both of them spoke Arabic. So they got in a conversation over the faith, and the bishop was explaining to that cab driver what the church was. He didn't have any idea, and by the time they arrived, he he stopped his cab right uh, in front, the uh, the sidewalk across from him. The doors of the church were open, and straight through you could see the tabernacle in the back. And so the cab driver turned around and told the bishop, You mean to tell me that right there, in there, God is living? And the bishop said, Yep, that's right. He says, I cannot believe it. He says, Why? He says, Because of the way you guys behave. If I believed that, I would lick the ground from the sidewalk all the way through. Why? Because it's holy. Because God is there. That Muslim taxi cab got it what most Catholics today ignore. They enter the church as if they're entering a hall. They have no notion of reverence. As soon as Mass is done, it's over, they start chatting. And I will remind all of you that chatting in church unnecessarily is a venial sin. And you might think it's a little detail, but I would like to remind you that venial sins will get you to sit in purgatory even longer. So if no other reason than your own comfort, I would recommend that you do not speak in church unless absolutely necessary. And wait till you're outside to show God the reverence that God deserves. So we understand now how we're going to interpret Scripture. Now I'm going to talk to you about something a little bit different, but very important. You all know that Protestant will tell you that all you need is what? Yeah, not love, faith, and what else? The Bible. Bible. All you need is Scripture. I don't need anything else, I just need Scripture. Well, I think that by what I just explained to you right now, you can see that there is an issue with that, because how do you know what the literal sense is? If all you have is Scripture, how do you know what the literal sense is? Why? Because Scripture is more complicated than people think. I'm going to give you some examples. I'd like you to open your, your, uh, your Bibles, for those of you who have them, to Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Tell me when you get there. Let's see how fast you can get there. That chapter? Okay, could somebody read to me the verse from Luke 3 to uh, 23? Yes. To what? 24? Just the verse. When Jesus began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age. He was the son, as was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli. That's it. Joseph, son of who? Heli. Son of who? Heli. One more time. Son of who? Heli. Very good. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 16. It's right before the Gospel of Luke. Okay, anyone there? Yes, sorry. Could you please read it? Chapter 1, verse 16. Yes. And Jacob was the father of Joseph and husband of Mary. And her Stop. Who's the father of Joseph? Jacob. What did Luke say? 
So who's the father of jo- of Joseph according to to Saint uh, Luke? And Saint Matthew? Which one is it? They're both How do you know that? No, this is Saint Joseph. Saint Luke tells us Saint Joseph's dad's name is Heli. And Saint Matthew tells us that Saint Joseph's dad's name is Jacob. Looks like we don't know who Saint Joseph's father is. Now, here's the question. Try to figure this one out using Scripture only. So what do they mean by that when they say, all you need is Scripture? If you ask them, if you ask three different people who tell you all you need is Scripture, you're going to get three different answers. Because fundamentally, if you tell me all you need is Scripture, what you really mean is, I can explain everything in Scripture using Scripture only. As soon as you use something outside of Scripture to explain Scripture, you're telling me something is missing in Scripture. You understand? As soon as you use something outside of Scripture to explain Scripture, you're telling me something is missing in Scripture. Okay. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. Okay. Read that verse for me. There he settled in a town called Nazareth. In this way, the word was spoken through the prophets were to be fulfilled. What are those words? He will be called a Nazarene. Yes. So, another translation, translation renders it. And he went and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. What is this verse telling us? In St. Matthew, that St. Joseph went and lived in Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets about Jesus may be fulfilled. And what did they speak? They said, he shall be called a Nazarene. That's in quote. All right? I'll give any one of you a hundred bucks if you can find me that verse in Scripture. He shall be called a Nazarene. No, no, the place where St. Matthew is making reference to. He said, the prophet said, he shall be called a Nazarene. Oh. Find me in the prophets the place where it is stated, he shall be called a Nazarene. Will they give me 200 if I tell you it's not in the Bible? No, I'm not going to give you anything because you're right. It is not in the Bible. That verse is not there. Where is it? Okay. Where is it? Now. Let's go to Mark chapter 10, 46. Very good. Read that slowly and uh, loudly, please. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho... Stop right there. As he was what? Leaving Jericho. Keep on reading. With his disciples and a sizable crowd, Bartimaeus, 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 a blind man, son of That's it. That's a very famous story where Bartimaeus called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, which is now part of our prayers. Alright? That's what? Mark 10.46. Now, I want you to go... um, Yes. Now, I want you to go to Luke 18.35. 
Luke 18.35. Okay. Now, as he drew near to Jericho, there was a blind man sitting... Stop. As he drew what? Near to Jericho. All right. He was getting closer to Jericho when he saw the blind man Bartimaeus. What did we read a minute before? As he was what? Leaving. Okay, which one is it? Wait, where are we, Margaret? Luke 18.35. Which one is it? Was he getting close to Jericho when this happened? Or was, was he leaving Jericho when this happened? Explain. It's not the same. One, he's getting close. No, one thing we should never do with Scripture is try to guess. Or just get the meaning to fit because we just need to. Well, I mean, they're both true. How? How? Do you see the contradiction? How do you explain it using Scripture only? One more. Mark chapter 2 verse 26. Mark chapter 2 verse 26. Good. All right, read it out loud. How he went into the house of God when Abisar was high priest. Okay. So read one verse before just so we can understand the context. And how he went into the house of God when who was a priest? When Abiathar. 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 You see that? Mm-hmm. Abiathar. So Jesus is quoting from a passage of scripture where David was hungry and he went in the house of God and ate the showbread, which is reserved only to the priests. But David is from the tribe of Judah and the priests are from the tribe of Levi. And they're not allowed. Somebody from the tribe of Judah cannot be a priest. How could he not, one who is not a priest, enter the house of God and eat the showbread? That's what Jesus is pointing out. The key for us right now is that Jesus says, who was the high priest? Abiathar. Abiathar. Who was the high priest? Abiathar. Who was the high priest? Abiathar. Let's go to 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. David went to Nob and to Ahimelech, the priest. Stop. That's the passage Jesus is quoting. David went to Nob, that's the city, to which priest? Ahimelech. Ahimelech. But... What did Jesus say the priest's name was? What does scripture saying the name is? What did Jesus say the name was? And scripture says the name is? Anybody see the problem here? Jesus seems to have gotten the scriptures wrong. As a matter of fact, there are theologians who will say exactly that. Jesus got it wrong. Or, St. Mark got it wrong. Or maybe both. 
You know why? Because every copy of the New Testament of St. Mark that we have, every single copy, with that exception, says Abiathar. So it's not a copyist error. So somebody was copying and made a mistake. Besides, how do you make a mistake between Ahimelech and Abiathar? It isn't like John and Johnny now, is it? Very different. But Jesus said, when Abiathar was the high priest. But it's Ahimelech. How do you explain this using only scripture? Now let me give you the biggest, biggest one of all. What do we do on Holy Thursday? What do we go to church to celebrate what? Passover. Passover, institution of the Eucharist, right? Why do we do that? Because Jesus did what? Celebrated the Passover. That's what St. Mark tells us. That's what St. Matthew tells us. That's what St. Luke tells us. St. John tells us something else. St. John tells us that Jesus died on the eve of the Passover. But, but, yeah. That's a big one now. This is not a point of detail now, is it? The evangelists do not agree on whether Jesus celebrated the Passover or whether he didn't celebrate the Passover. Because it is clearly stated that in all the three synoptics, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus celebrated the Passover. John very clearly tells us that he, they, they went to him to see if he was dead before sunset. Why? Because when sunset hits, it's Passover and the Jews can't do any more work. So they wanted it done before what? The celebration of the Passover. Now if you think this is amusing, I want to remind you that non-Christian apologists, Muslim apologists in particular, are using those points that brought your attention to, conf- to convince Christians that the Bible is not a reliable book. Are you ready to answer them? Do you have the answers? Will you have the answers? You bet. Where are the answers? Are they in the Bible? Where are they? Good intuition. The catechism. Actually, the catechism doesn't have those answers. No. The catechism is more about how we should live and how we should live our faith. Where are the answers? The church. The church has the answers. I'm going to give you one answer. I can't answer all of those. I have a series that covers all of them. But I'm going to give you one. The Ahimelech Abiathar business, because it's very interesting and very subtle. Jesus is walking with his disciples through a field. It's the Sabbath. They're hungry. They're plucking um, um, wheat and they're just eating the grains. That was considered by the Pharisees as work. And they were not allowed to work. So, the Pharisee squad comes over and then zooms on this and says, Ha! How do you allow your disciples to do this on the Sabbath? And you're pretending to be the Messiah. So Jesus answers back and says, Have you not read? Keen on the irony. He's talking to who? The scribes, the Pharisees, those who study scripture day in, day out, they memorize the text. Have you not read? You understand? Key on that. 
If you don't key on it, scripture doesn't become alive for you. You just read it. Have you not read? Da, 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 da. Sure, Lord. Yeah, pass me the salt, please. You don't read scripture like this. Have you not read how when David was hungry, he went in the house of God and ate the showbread? So he's saying, David did something far worse. He's not a priest. He's not allowed to even touch that bread. But he went in and he ate the bread. And you, you Pharisees, are telling us that you're the guardian of the temple, the temple that David built. Okay? And then he adds, when Abiathar was the high priest. Don't you think they know that it wasn't Abiathar the high priest? Have you not read? What is the assumption here? You read. You know. It'd be like me saying to you, if you were to come to me and say, um, Dad, I want to be able to... Uh, um, I want to be able to, um, uh, I want to become a superhero. I just want to have two superpowers. And I say to you, have you not watched what happened in The Incredibles? What is the, what is the implication here? Am I saying to you, you haven't watched it? No, I'm saying, have you not watched what happened? Or, or better yet, you come to me and say, I wish I had a superhero baby. Why are you laughing? Because there's a context that you know about and I know about, but I didn't say it now, did I? But you immediately know who I'm talking about. Right? Jack-Jack attack. Right? So I would look at you and say, have you not watched what happened when... And instead of say, saying Jack-Jack, who was the baby, I say, when Syndrome was in the house... Do you see the implication? Am I making a mistake? No. Don't I know that the baby is Jack-Jack? Yeah. What did I say syndrome? Because that was the ultimate consequence of having a baby with superpowers. Get it? That's what's going on. Why? Because Abiathar was the son of Ahimelech. And they were part of a line of priesthood that was coming to an end. Ahimelech and Abiathar were priests who were favored by Saul. David favored Zadok. The other line of priesthood that started and flourished under David. You get it? So Abiathar was the end of the line. All right? Zadok was the beginning of the new line. You start to get it now? Yeah. Have you not read have you not read what happened when David was hungry and how he got into the house and ate the showbread which was reserved to the priest when Abiathar was the high priest? So who is Jesus Christ compared to David? Come on. God, the king. He is the son of David. He is of the line of David. Right? Right, so David was coming in, Saul and Abiathar were moving out. David and Zadok were coming in, Saul and Abiathar were on the way out. You Pharisees and Herod 
are on the way out. Me and Peter are on the way in. You get it now? You understand what's going on? Yeah? Yeah. See how deep this is? Why don't we get it right away? Because we don't have the culture anymore. We lost it. You can't understand this without that background. And that's not something that comes naturally to us. It is something that requires work. But it is blessed work. Because when we do that, we truly come to know God and His will the way He wants us to know it. You get it? Once you are rooted in Scripture this way, there is nothing that you can't take on. And the only way to be rooted in the Scripture this way is to be rooted in the church because the church is the only divine institution that has the fullness of the truth. Scripture alone, you're holding Scripture alone and studying Scripture alone, you're like an orphan trying to find your way home. Reading the Scripture when you're with the church is reading the Scripture with your mother taking you home. That's the difference. She knows the way. You don't. I don't. The church does. Do you understand that? Mm -hmm. We do not study Scripture for the love of Scripture only. We study Scripture for for the love of Scripture and the church. Yes? Mm -hmm. All right. Now, I want to give you a very brief a very brief outline of the book of uh, uh, genealogy. I'm going to give it to you in three different ways. The first one is that the book of of, uh, Genesis is really the book of generations. It's the book of all these generations that went by. And you can think of it as book of ten generations. I'm going to list those for you quickly, for you to understand what they are. The generations of heaven and earth in chapter 2, verse 4, which prepares for humanity. Then there's the generation of Adam, man, chapter 5, verse 1, creation of humanity. Then the generations of Noah, which is the destruction and salvation of humanity, in chapter 6, verse 9, a new beginning, a new Adam. Then the generations of the sons of Noah, chapter 10 and following, when the humanity is dispersed in the world. Then we have the generations of Terah, who is the father of Abraham. And that becomes the patriarchal line, the first patriarchal line. Followed by the generations of Ishmael, which is the 12 tribes of Ishmael, and that's the first text that deals with the nations. So we have the patriarchs, we have the nations. Then, the generations of Isaac, chapter 25, verse 19, the second patriarchal line with Isaac, followed by the generations of Esau, which is again the nations. And then finally, the generations of Jacob, chapter 37, verse 2 and following, Israel's tribe. So you notice the last five generations are three dealing with Israel, two dealing with the world, and they're sandwiched like this. Which indicates to us that Israel is the firstborn son. Israel must lead the world to God. Understood? Mm -hmm. So those ten generations act like a signpost in the whole book of of Genesis. It's a good guide to help us throughout the book. Another way to look at it, which is also very interesting, is that in, in ancient times, they did not write the way we do. Today we write only linearly. 
I got up in the morning, it was 7 o'clock, I ate breakfast, my brother annoyed me, I went to school, came back home, had lunch, my brother annoyed me, I had to study, my brother annoyed me, I then ate supper, my brother annoyed me, and before I went to bed, I poured two glasses of water over his head. That was my day. My brother annoys me. Linear. Right? They didn't write this way. They write more, They wrote more like a mountain. We're starting the climb. We climb. That is the apex. That's the most important part of the book. And we go down. The book of Exodus is structured this way. The most important part, part of the book is in the middle of the book. What's in the middle of Exodus? Moses receiving the tablets of the law. In the book of Genesis, there are two ways of doing the same thing. One, we have human origin, the story of Adam, followed by the breakup in the brotherhood when Cain killed Abel. Then we have Noah, the new beginning. Okay? Followed by what? Another fight between brothers, Esau and Jacob. Then followed by the story of Joseph and the new beginning of Israel. So, the beginning of man, the fights between the brothers, Noah. Fights between the brothers, Esau and Jacob, beginning of Israel. You see the symmetries? It is symmetrically built, and the apex is the story of Noah. I can do the same thing with the story of Abraham, and I'll show you that later. So the ancient texts are far richer than our linear, simple, dimensional texts these days. So that's why you cannot read scripture when you read a newspaper. It won't work. Alright? And the last point I want to leave you with, and that's the most important one of them all, is this word, which we're going to talk more about. But I want you to remember this word. The covenant. The covenant. The covenant is the guiding principle through the entire scripture, and in, particularly in Genesis. And the covenant is when we enter into a covenant with God, God says, I will have you as my people, you, and I will be your God. And we say, yes, Lord. When do we do that as Catholics? At baptism. When we're baptized, we have entered the covenant with God. And God says this, If you obey my covenant, I will bless you. If you do not obey my covenant, if you break my covenant, I will curse you. Blessings and curses are the two ways in which God tries to bring us back. Now, this might seem very far-fetched, but I'll give you a very simple example. Dad says, do your studies, you get an ice cream. Don't do your studies, you won't get an allowance. Make sense? God is a father. God cares about us. God does the same thing. Okay? That is a principle that we're going to find in Genesis over and over again, where the book gives us multiple examples to teach us how God shows His love to us as a loving Father. Alright? So to sum it up, number one, what we've learned tonight was that there are four senses of Scripture. And I have a whole series where I spend an hour per one of those senses, going in details over this. If you're interested, that series is available. The second point I made to your, brought to your attention is that we can't say that all we need is Scripture. There are many apparent contradictions in Scriptures that cannot be explained by Scripture alone.
You need the church. So our study of the book of Genesis is rooted in the church. And the third point I'm going to leave you with is the covenant of God, which is active right now in your lives today. And it is that covenant that is going to govern your life. So if you want to be blessed, if you want to be happy, if you really truly want to be at peace and, and receive the joy of God, my recommendation to you is to make a habit of every day keeping a Bible by your bedside and reading a little bit from the New Testament. Start with the Gospel of St. Luke. Just read five, six lines and then meditate on those lines and ask God to show you what He wants you to learn from these according to that sense, the moral sense. And ask you've got an angel to guide you through this. Yes? yes? Very good. Let us finish with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you and praise you and give you glory for your word, for the scripture that you have given us, and also, Lord, and perhaps even more importantly, for the church, which guides us in all things, which is a mother to us, which cares for us, and teaches us the truth. All the truth, Lord, that you have given us. We ask you now to guide us through the studies as we continue in, in this journey. Lord, give us the courage to put the inspiration you have given us into effect and to grow in the faith and in your love. And we ask this through the intercession of Our Lady as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, let's see. We have some time for questions. Yes. Um, do people go with just literal sense of Scripture and don't use the other three senses? Protestant will use mostly the literal sense and the moral sense. Most people use the moral sense. Okay? But without the proper foundation, it can get you to say whatever you want. Any other question? Yes. Um, I don't understand the part about uh, the scripture contradicting itself. Why would it do that? I mean, uh, the, like, uh, what's the name? Because, because scripture is a complex book. And texts were written from multiple different perspectives. And it, they take into account a lot of things that are not being stated. So all you have are the evidence, but you don't have the full case. So it looks like Scripture is contradicting itself, but actually it isn't. You only have notes, but you don't have the whole story. Okay. That's the whole idea. Scripture is not the whole story. You understand? Any other questions? All right. Very good. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.